Okay, so uh, welcome to Adventures Among Ideas, and I am kind of unprepared today. I was thinking originally of talking more about value, and then I have, uh, which is something I'm writing about, but I'm also writing about literature in the same, uh, a similar context, and I was reading um, Joshua Gang's new book. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, G-A-N-G. Anyway, I've been uh, reading his new book on, uh, what's it called? Behaviorism, Consciousness, and the Literary Mind, something like that. Um, which is a really interesting book. And so also I'm uh, writing on a similar topic. So I uh, got interested and was started to think more and more about that. And so I decided I wanted to talk, wanted to talk about that for my episode today. And so I kind of half prepared two different things and uh we'll see what happens could be interesting but i wanted to talk today about bf skinner's theory of literature this is something i don't think um uh, gang talks about in his book um he's focused more on the tradition uh watson and uh more of the english uh the british behaviorist tradition people like ryle and well some other people but not so much on the american tradition except for uh watson i think but uh, skinner is an interesting character um i don't think many people know that he wrote about literature um i think some people know that he people who know about skinner i think know that he was very interested in literature that he wanted to be a writer when he was young but i don't think his writings about literature are very well known um, so I'm mainly referring today to some things he wrote in the 70s, a lecture on having a poem, a lecture on having a poem, and his, uh, another essay called Reflections on Meaning and Structure. But he ha uh, Skinner really had a lifelong interest in literature, as I mentioned. Um, so he wanted to be a novelist when he was young. But he also, uh, fairly early in his career, like the 1930s, um, published papers on Gertrude Stein, which is a uh, kind of interesting. It was before Skinner had really developed his own theory very thoroughly. So it's interesting to kind of see what he was interested in at that early date and how he approaches Gertrude Stein. And he wrote about Shakespeare and, um, yeah, he uses a lot of literary examples in his writing. So you can really tell that he loved literature he appreciated it he read a lot of it and he mentions it a lot shakespeare comes up a lot um, in his writings don quixote <clears throat> things like that uh and of course gertrude stein so uh another important thing I, uh, that i want to mention is that he was friends with the um, important 20th century literary critic um, i.a richards they were friends for something like 50 years almost uh, more than 40 years and they disagreed a lot with each other they debated each other but they were uh you know on very friendly terms uh, they spent time at each other's schools and um, yeah just had a lot of interaction over the years um and he also he talks about that a little bit in his lecture on having a poem 
And he also talks in that paper about his interactions with Archibald MacLeish, kind of famous um, American poet, I believe. I don't know much about poetry, um, but MacLeish kind of criticizes um, Skinner in one of his poems, which is interesting. Uh, I'm not going to get into that today, but it's worth looking at if you're interested in that kind of thing in poetry and um, or Skinner. And I should um, kind of re related to that. Um, Skinner and Richards had these dueling poems at one time where Richards is attacking behaviorism and Skinner is trying to defend himself in kind of a jokey way in, in poetry. And their poems were published uh, together at some point. Um, I forget which journal it was in. But so you've got these uh, you know, dueling, dueling poet, uh, poems from I.A. Richards and Skinner, which is an interesting moment in uh, intellectual history of the 20th century, I think. So uh, as a way of getting into Skinner's theory of um, literature, which I'll try to keep kind of short, um, I want to mention M.H. Abrams, who was one of the major literary critics or literary historians of the 20th century. And he pointed out that theories of art or theories of literature uh, tend to emphasize one of four things. So it, um, a theory of art could focus on the work itself, so separate from um, anything else, focus on the work itself. It could focus on the relation between the work and the creator of the work. It could focus on the relation between the work and the, um, I guess, the world beyond the work, like the relationship between the work and the environment, the work and nature. So how does the work reflect nature? Um, or it could focus on the relation between the work and the audience. So you've got these four things, kind of the work itself, the uh, work and the creator, the work and the audience, and the work and nature. So these are the, kind of the four things that... Um, uh, theories of art look at, and they tend to emphasize one or the other. They uh, very often don't focus on everything. So Skinner is going to give us a kind of behavioral theory of poetry, of literature. He's focusing on poetry, so I'll just um, maybe try to use the word poetry and poem as short, but you could think of this more broadly in terms of art, other kinds of art, music, whatever, sculpture. Um, <clears throat> so behavioral criticism could focus on any of these, um, I, except I wouldn't say that it really focuses on the work itself, because of course a behavioral theory of poetry is focusing on the relationship between poetry and behavior, right? The work and the behavior of the author, the behavior of the reader or listener. So it's not really um, going to focus on the work itself behavior necessarily takes us beyond just the work, analyzing the work. Uh, Skinner himself is mainly focused on the relationship between the work and the author. So that's mainly what I'm going to mention today. Um, to some extent, he also focuses on the audience, but for whatever reason, he was more interested in the, um, um, the relation between the work and the behavior of the author. And I suppose this is somewhat of a more traditional stance to take. And Skinner was um, raised in a more 
well, the earlier kind of literary theory, the literary theory of the early 20th century, so really before like new criticism, before reader response um, theories and so on. So anyway, when people, uh, and in that time, people focused more on, you know, biographical criticism and things like that, relating the work to the author, to the author's um, circumstances, life history, and so on. So Skinner is basically giving us a version of that, but supported by a kind of behavioral theory, by his theory of behavior, um, which is interesting. And there's a similarity, I think, with um, Morris Peckham, who was, came up in a similar at a similar time. And so Peckham also was, I think, trying to take traditional, the traditional interests of people who wrote about literature, you know, looking at the biographies of the people who wrote, looking at the historical circumstances in which they wrote, but um, supporting this with a new kind of behavioral theory. All right, so anyway, Skinner. Um, he has two uh, kinds of things he's criticizing when he's looking at literature. He has two maybe opponents in mind. So one of these things that he's against, I would say, is formalism or uh, structural structuralism. And um, this goes back kind of to the uh, the new critics. I don't know that Skinner ever specifically... Well, he does... Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if he really deals with um, the major new critics, people like um, Wimsatt, Wimsatt and Beers, uh, Beardsley and others. Um, I.A. Richards was not really, not really a uh, new critic. So he does engage with people like Richards and I think William Empson. Empson's kind of a new critic, but not, I don't, that term's a little bit weird. Um, I think it, that uh, the structuralism that he's um, talking about comes out more with um, someone like Jakobsen, Roman Jakobsen, whose name I can never say correctly, um, who around Skinner's time was looking at things like Shakespeare from a really formalistic, structuralist perspective. So he's looking at um, the form of the work, the language inside the work, and he's not really ta uh, thinking so much about Shakespeare as a person, as uh, the historical context in which Shakespeare was producing works and out of which these works came, he's looking at the, you know, the specific words used in the work and how they relate to each other, the patterns of sounds and so on. And so Skinner is attacking that kind of structuralism. He also associates this with um, Noam Chomsky, who had a big influence on um, literary theory around that time. And of course, Skinner had something of a feud, like non-personal feud. They, I don't think Skinner and Chomsky were ever in direct contact, uh, contact except uh, I may, may be wrong about that. Chomsky had sent, uh, had reviewed Skinner's verbal behavior and had sent him a draft of the review, um, which Skinner never replied to, but they did criticize each other <laughs> in uh, their writings, although I don't know if they ever... Uh, um, discuss these things in person. Um, so he's also has um, Chomskyan grammar, uh, Chomskyan view of, uh, of of grammar in mind as a kind of formalism or structuralism. Uh, so th that's one thing that he's arguing against. The other thing he's arguing against is this idea of autonomous creativity. 
He's arguing against the person as a kind of self-actor. So this is something that Dewey also criticizes. Dewey talks about self-action as this older view of how things work, which um, you know, is still useful for us in kind of everyday conversation, but it's not a real useful explanation of how things actually work. And so Skinner is similarly criticizing this idea of um, the person as an autonomous agent where the work of art is the product of the artist's kind of autonomous creativity separate from everything else, the kind of um, independent will. And of course, Skinner was famously against the idea of free will. So that's no surprise that he's uh, criticizing this um, aspect of how we think about what artists do. Um, so Skinner is going to talk about uh, creating a poem or having a poem, as he says it, as a kind of natural selection. So I'm going to try to talk about this a little bit, uh, break this down a little bit. It's, um, yeah, of course, some people are going to um, disagree with this a lot. Some people might find it an interesting idea, but there's some tricky, maybe tricky aspects to it. So maybe the first thing to mention is that a poem begins for Skinner as a verbal response to the poet's circumstances. You know, something happens, something in the poet's environment, whatever. Um, and the impetus to give this kind of response, you can respond to things in any, any, any number of ways. But to respond with something to something with a poem is a particular kind of response, and that's going to be determined by the, especially by the poet's um, personal history. You know the kind of things they've been been exposed to, the kinds of um, the thing, the kinds of other texts they've been exposed to, and so on. There's also some genetic component. So Skinner will talk a lot about genetic and personal history or environmental history. Um, as the major factors determining your response to whatever. Um, another way of talking about this personal history is your history of reinforcement. Um, and at the species level, the history of reinforcement is in, uh, part of our um, DNA, our genes. Uh, but anyway, in either case, whether you're talking about genetics or about your personal history, the behavior of the poet is traceable to the environment. It's caused in kind of multiple ways, and Skinner talks about multiple causation in other works. Um, but it's um, traceable, ultimately, determined ultimately by the environment. So the environment acts upon you originally, and then that determines how you act, and so on. Uh, so he describes the poet as a, this is a, maybe one of the key ideas in Skinner's theory of uh, literature is that the poet is simply a place where certain kinds of processes happen. The poet is a locus, a location where things happen. And I, I relate this back to William James, who when he would talk about words like I, like I think, just means that thinking is happening here. When we say I think or something like that, we just mean we're, lo we're locating a particular process, right? Thinking is happening here. Um, so for Skinner, the poet is a place, the place where poetry happens. And he compares this to a woman having a baby. So a poet has a poem 
in a similar way to um, that a woman has a baby, right? We talked about having a baby. And we don't really say that the woman um, designs the baby or creates the baby in the same way that we say a poet creates a poem. Um, the woman is a the location where this process of baby making happens. Uh, and this pro but this process itself is a product of genetic and environmental circumstances. So it's something that um, we're comfortable, I guess Skinner here is trying to get us comfortable with the notion of things happening that are not intentionally willed or autonomously willed. So he's using um, the creation of a baby as an example of this, where we don't really have a problem saying that the woman isn't totally responsible for how the baby turns out. We understand that it's a result of these various genetic things coming together and combining and influences in the environment. And the woman is the place where all of these, all of these things kind of come together. And we do recognize that a woman can maybe screw up this process. Um, yeah, a woman can screw up this process. Um, but of course for Skinner, this you know, if a woman does something bad to harm the fetus, this is traceable to the woman's personal history. It's not traceable to some kind of um, inner spring of action or autonomous action on the part of the woman. For example, if she takes a bunch of drugs or something while she's pregnant, it's not something she just autonomously decides to do. It's something that's prepared by her um, personal history, perhaps by her genetic history. Uh, the poet, of course, there's, there's differences, obviously, between having a baby and having a poem. Um, so perhaps uh, you can maybe trace out this analogy more if you want. So maybe compare um, kind of the revising of a poem to raising a child or something. We'll kind of leave our um, analogy aside for the moment, at least. But the poet um, has more control over the final design of the poem than the woman has over how her baby comes out, at least at the beginning. Um, but this, for Skinner, is similarly tied to the poet's genetic and personal history. So the poet begins by responding, as I said, to some situation with words, some verbal response. Um, and the particular words that the poet uses are going to be the result of various environmental factors. So, for example, um, the language, obviously, that you know, or the languages that you know, the various kinds of texts you've been exposed to, the various, you know, formal devices that you've been exposed to or that you've learned. Right? All these things are coming from your history, your personal history in a certain kind of environment. So that's going to determine a lot of the basics of your response. And this early verbal material is kind of the raw material that is then... Um, that kind of goes through this process of natural selection. Uh, so the poet either lets it stand, right? You could throw out this verbal material. Some of it you just keep, you let it stay there. So you don't change it, you don't get rid of it. You just kind of let it um, sit, you let it stand as Skinner says. Um, and th in that case, it can become the basis for new responses, right? So you have uh, a phrase that you've some kind of interesting phrase that for some reason came up in response to your situation, then that becomes the kind of the beginning of a new response. 
sort of the uh, material for a new response. Um, and then, yeah, so otherwise you can, um, yeah, you keep throwing up new responses and you select the things that you like that Skinner would say is reinforcing to you. You keep the stuff that yeah reinforces you. We call this like beautiful or interesting or whatever. These are ways of talking about things that reinforce your own behavior that you find to be um, yeah productive. So uh, Skinner talks about this as natural selection. It's helpful maybe to think about it as artificial selection. So Darwin, of course, talks about artificial selection, and this was, I think, one of the inspirations for the idea of natural selection, because artificial selection, for example, happens when we breed um, particular kinds of animals or plants. We're trying to have them grow in a certain way or become a certain kind of a certain type, become better for us in certain ways, more useful to us in certain ways. So we selectively breed animals and plants and this is a kind of artificial selection because it happens with the intervention of uh, people and so it's interesting maybe to think of uh, a poem in that way so you have to understand though that artificial selection is a kind of natural selection at least from a skinnerian perspective because people are determined and people and people's behavior are determined through natural selection um I mean, also through culture, but culture is a product ultimately of natural selection, selection as well. So all of these things eventually go back to, to natural selection, but it's useful to draw in this idea of artificial selection where people are um, selectively breeding animals. And a poem is uh, kind of like that. So you're, you've got these raw materials and you're forming them in certain ways. You're put, putting them together in certain ways to create a new thing in the same way that we might create a new animal or a new kind of plant. So the selector in this case might be that sort of the immediate selector is a person, but we can't understand the person as a autonomous, a totally autonomous agent. It's someone whose behavior is itself determined by all these other environmental and genetic factors. And Kind of developing this point, Skinner draws a um, a parallel between um, poetic creationism and religious creationism. So the kind of common cultural idea we have about poetry is more a kind of poetic creationism parallel to religious creationism, which we don't, at least not so many people, accept anymore. So, for example, it was once thought that the incredible variation found in nature, the incredible variety of forms of life, um, could only be explained through the create creativity of God. So it could only be explained through referring to the creativity of the divine creator. Um, but then it was discovered by people like Darwin that variation could appear through other kinds of processes, through mutations and um, yeah, genetic variations, ultimately we would come to think of them as genetic variations, and then environmental selection of those variations or mutations. Environmental selection, or I also think about environmental filtration. So the environment filters out things that uh, don't work, and we talk about this as selection of things that do work. We can think of this as a selection of things that do work, or filtering out things that don't work in the particular environment. Um, 
And so ap applying this to um, poetry, it often seems as though the, you know, it seems to us like the variation found in language and literature must come from something similar. Uh, if we're thinking in terms of religious creationism. So we might think about the variation in poetry coming from this inherent creativity, autonomous creativity of individuals, which is parallel to this, the um, autonomous creativity of God. Um, or this is given to some innate faculty. So like what Chomsky does with um, universal grammar, it's kind of this innate thing that gives rise to all this variety. Um, but Skinner argues that the variation that we see in literature and language can be better explained by more of a Darwinian type of mutation and selection. And it just happens that the, the place where mutation and selection happens for a piece of art, for a poem, uh, for a poem happen is the individual, is an individual person. But again, how it happens is going to be determined by genetic and personal history, which of course are themselves very complex things. And so when you have these very complex things coming together in an individual person, you're going to get variation. There's nothing terribly, I don't think there's not anything terribly mysterious about that. And Skinner is not going to, at least Skinner is not going to, uh, doesn't see anything terribly, terribly mysterious about that. Uh, so what else do I want to say about that? Um, okay, so the importance of thinking about, I should say something about why it's important to think about literature in this way. So for Skinner, this is not just, you're not just simply trying to find a better explanation, a more satisfying explanation or whatever. The distinction between creation as this deterministic natural selection process and creation as some kind of autonomous self-action, autonomous self-willing is important. So if we understand creation as a kind of self-action, as something that's just a product of a kind of genius and innate genius, then there's basic, there's nothing we can really do to improve that, right? We can try to give the artist an opportunity, give the poet an opportunity, but we can't really do anything else. The poet, we can't teach the poet anything. We can't make poetry better. We can just give them an opportunity cr to create. And basically that's it. But if creation is determined by genetic and personal history, we can improve it, at least on the personal history side. I mean, Skinner was not really interested in um, improving uh, gene genetics. <laughs> he wasn't interested in anything like that. So he wasn't going to try to selectively breed people or anything, but he was interested in uh, our design of the environment, of our environment and culture is kind of our environment, which we have, um, which has been, which is a process of natural selection. But we also, as we have come to greater and greater knowledge of ourselves and our environments, we've started, started to design our environments more and more. Um, a lot of this is Kind of haphazard if you look out at where you live if you live in a big city or something you can see how it's kind of all this random jumble of stuff there's a certain there's certain planning that goes on but it's uncoordinated planning i would say um, but skinner was interested in more of a coordinated kind of 
a coordinated, cord more coordinated attempt at planning our environment in order to produce behaviors that we think are better than other behaviors. So if we're interested in poetry, if we want to make better poetry, we can figure out what are the factors that go into um, making good poetry. And we can try to bring out those factors more. We can try to design those factors into our environment, make them more likely to occur. Right? We can try to provide the better circumstances for producing poetry. Um, if, of course, if we decide that poetry is something we like, that we want to keep around. And uh, you get a little bit hint here of Skinner's utopianism, which um, he expressed most um, famously in his book Walden II. Uh, yeah, so that's about all I want to say. Skinner deals with uh, the audience a little bit in some places. Um, and of course, the uh, the artist, he points out the, that the artist is the first, generally speaking, the first audience for his or her work. And um, in some ways, the more, uh, in some respects, the most important um, audience for his or her work. And this kind of uh well to take poetry as an example the poet is the first reader of his work generally and um, that reading of the work the poet's um behavior as a reader of his or his or her own work is important for the construction of the work of course so there's an interaction between kind of artist and audience um yeah and related theories of literature which um i'm writing about and hopefully uh, we'll perhaps talk about in a video at some point are uh found in the works of morse peckham who was also more focused on the the artist and the circumstances of the artist um but also i, I would put in here the, the the work of louise rosenblatt who was focused much more on the reader side of the equation so anyway, that's about all I wanted to talk about. Not too terrible, considering I felt unprepared. But anyway, thank you for listening, and hope you have a great day. Talk to you again.